Welcome to Fear at the Top, powered by the Industry Observer, where we speak to leaders of the entertainment, tech, and media industry to learn about their successes, mistakes, and how they operate at the top of their class. Welcome to Fear at the Top. I'm Luke Gerges for the Industry Observer, and today uh, we are lucky to have Roger Field, CEO of Live Nation of Australasia. Live Nation are without a doubt the most powerful and influential concert promoter in the planet. They also have a lot of venues and they're in all aspects really of the music industry. You know, they're approaching $1.5 billion of revenue every quarter. Roger, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. I want to hear it from the very start, Roger. How did you get into the music business? What started it for you? Where did you begin your journey? Look, I, I have a I have a, a story which I think is similar to um, a lot of people who are in this industry, which is um, I started at the bottom. Um, I uh, took a gap year in London between um, school and university, and uh, my aunt bless her, arranged a lovely job for me working on a lettuce farm in a small town called Newant in Gloucestershire. And after six months of being paid £3 an hour um, to drive a tractor, I came back to London and I couldn't get a job. So I started um, flyering local houses and started a gardening business even though I knew nothing about handiwork or gardening and I broke a lot of things and killed a lot of things um, whilst applying for jobs in everything from record stores to ushering in theatres, um, all, all revolving around music because I love music. Why else would I be here? And eventually I got a, an opportunity to interview for a call centre job with a company called Stoll Moss Theatres, which was um, Janet Holmes Court's theatre company in London. And um, I ended up spending probably about five months selling tickets, um, everything from Oliver to you know Phantom of the Opera, um, 11 theatres they had that we all sold tickets um, to above a bunch of theatres in Shaftesbury Avenue. And then I came back to uh, to go to uni and Ticketech had just expanded into Victoria. Um, to what take were you a, studying? I, was, I studied arts, yes. Which, majoring in? Majoring in doing it in a very, very long amount of time because I worked all the way through it and majoring in the subjects I could get through quite easily. So... Um, I ended up majoring in political science and history. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty passionate about history and, and, and politics as well. And uh, it took me six years to complete a three-year degree. So uh, I, I very much did... I did the first year full-time, and then I was just so taken up at work, um, and I loved work, I, I ended up going part-time and, and working pretty much uh, in, in my spare time. So, you know, as a, as, a, as a call centre operator, basically, and that's, that's where it all kicked off. And you loved it? I, I loved it. I loved the, um, I loved the process. Um, I loved the sort of getting onto the inside of something that, you know, I think people, people see every day what we do, but they don't understand what's behind it. They don't understand the magnitude and, and the machine that exists behind producing everything from a theatre show to, you know, a stadium concert or a festival. And I, you know, I, the reason I love what I do as well is not, it's not just because of the music, it's the relationships. I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that there's an, another industry which um, is so built on strong relationships and friendships. And, you know, we were, we were selling tickets for Sunset Boulevard um, at the time, which at times meant we got about three phone calls on a Sunday. So we'd do everything from play cricket in the in the call centre to you know to to trade anecdotes and you know play around like fools. But 
you know, I made some, I made some great friendships there. Um, some of my best friends still today were in that call center who, who are no longer in the business. Um, but I just, yeah, I, I feel like it, it's, it was stimulating because every day was different and that's, that's basically the way this business is. How old were you then? Uh, I would have been 18, 18 or 19. So, yeah, I, 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 I just started to be able to drink, which probably helped. <laughs> so what was your next move after that? My next move was to, um, to apply for a job I really didn't think I'd get, um, which was um, box office manager at Melbourne Olympic Parks, the, the management trust for Rod Laver Arena and that whole precinct. And look, I just, I took a punt. Um, I felt like I, you know, I could, I could give it a crack. I'd been at Ticketek for about five years and I felt like it would be great to get a little taste of, of working in government, but not a complete bureaucracy, but also to, um, to, to, you know, really have a crack at working at one of the, I think, the best venues in, in the country and, and high, highest profile venues in the world. And I got it, which was uh, which was a surprise. It was a surprise for me in in a lot of respects, and I think a surprise for a lot of people, including one of my um, soon-to-be staff members who also applied for the job, um, because I was I think I was twenty, yeah, I was I just turned twenty-three, I think. So um, you know, my predecessor had been there for a very long time. So suddenly, I was responsible for this absolutely massive precinct as far as everything to do with ticketing went which included the Australian Open so it was a, a pretty significant change of tack but still very much focused on where I'd come from in ticketing. So you're 23 in a role that you're pretty unqualified for what mistakes did you make early? Everything from operational mistakes to um, you know to I think the biggest challenge and it's I think the biggest challenge of everybody in a senior role as you progress um, just managing and motivating and dealing with staff um, how many staff did you have then i only initially i was only responsible for i think it was um two or three but very different culture um a lot of history in their professional careers in that business um what what used to be melbourne park um which was managed by tennis australia and um, the Sports and Entertainment Centre and Olympic Park across the road had been separate trusts. And just before I came on the scene, they'd merged them. Um, so I had one staff member who'd come from one side of the road and another who'd come from the other. Um, and there was a lot of, there was a, a lot of politics in there as well. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the mistake that has been made repeatedly in my, in my career as far as that stuff's concerned is not grasping... The, not grasping the, the the need for immediate direct conversations about how people are, why they're behaving the way they're behaving, um, what the standard of expectation is. Um, so that you know, my 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 biggest my biggest mistake was um, towards the end of um, my tenure there, um, which I, I chose the end of my tenure, but I think it was nearly finished for me after this incident. Um, where uh, I was uh, fairly quickly over the three or so years I was there, I was escalated into a role where I was responsible for merchandising, all the corporate hospitality, the super boxes, ticketing as well, and, and event marketing. So dealing with the promoters um, on, a, on a daily basis, my team expanded dramatically. And I, was, um, I really wasn't very good at merchandising. Um, I, it's a hard business. It's probably the hardest, one of the hardest businesses in the industry. Um, and we had uh, the WWE wrestling um, happening one night and they changed the rostering system. And instead of staff having to reply to decline shifts, they had to reply to accept them. And at about five o'clock, no merchandising staff had showed up. 
So um, there was a, an absolute panic um, and suddenly I was grabbing every member of staff who was um, an ally and a friend and sticking them in a WWE t-shirt and everyone from the EA to the chief executive at the time who's still a very good friend of mine still working there through to um, to me and a bunch of other people were selling merchandise off trestle tables and it was the biggest per head that um, the building had ever seen so that was a success story but it was an absolute debacle and I yeah, that that was that was the time for me to actually start looking elsewhere, which I thankfully I'd already started to do. I'm pretty curious. You say merchandising is the hardest part of the business. Can you explain that? It is an absolute grind, and I don't think a great deal has changed in swag, as it's called in the business, um, since it was being done in the 70s. Um, you know, you, you're estimating, you, you're having to estimate. Um, behaviors and prices and materials that you can't recover if you know the cost from if you if you if you overrun you have opportunity cost if you don't do enough the hours are extremely long um, you know those guys are quite often still you know counting merch in or out at you know at two in the morning after the show's bumped out it's just hard graft it's genuine hard work um, you know I was talking with our our, our merchandisers for um, for download festival you know, and they worked. A, they worked a, something like an eight a.m. to midnight single shift, just because that's you know that's what you've got to do. You can't swap staff in and out and keep control of what's going on. The demand doesn't slow down at any point. Um, I, I just yeah, it, I'm glad I had an insight into it, but it wasn't for me. You finish your position there, and you move where? Next move was was probably the most significant one, leading to my role today, which was to um, to basically forced Michael Koppel to um, interview me for a job that he said didn't exist um, when one of my uh, one of my you know counterparts uh, well I dealt with I dealt with all three Michaels um, plus Paul Dainty and a, and a bunch of other hirers of, of Rod Laver um, pretty regularly um, Michael most consistently um, because he's he's very he's very keen on Intel and people's views of of you know ticket prices for his shows what the you know what what the feeling is before it goes on sale you know just a lot of input and advice he he's very meticulous in in gathering information um to back up the decisions that he you know that he he makes on gut instinct um you know Gidinski and, and Chuggy, you know, it'd either be at a show or, or you know, Chuggy's yelled at me a few times in that role as well. Um, but Michael was the one that I felt um, if, if I had an opportunity to move into the promoting business, um, you know, he was, he was probably the sort of personality that fitted really well with me. Um, so... Um, when when his ticketing person at the time left, I, I called him up and, and said, you know, I wanted to have a have a crack. So it took a while, but we got there eventually. And tell me about that journey now. You're, you're working at Live Nation HQ. What was the first initial experience like? What was it like growing within that company? It was interesting. Um, first of all, it, it took a it took a fair bit of um, it took a fair bit of consideration to to leave Michael's business. Um, but I've been there seven years, and I, I felt like, um, as as everybody probably listening to this would realise, that opportunities in this business don't necessarily come that often. And my friend and and colleague Luke Heed had um, left Paul Dainty's business to go up to Asia to run the Live Nation business up there, and he came back down to Australia for his wedding and 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 asked to meet up with me. And um, 
basically you know told me that 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 he was coming back to australia and 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 with the remit to open the australian new zealand business and would i would i like to join him so i i, I did jump at the opportunity um and those early days, we, we, we jokingly refer to it as just a couple of guys giving it a go um, because it was a real struggle um, because uh, I, I mentioned relationships in this business, but when, you know, it, it, it's, all very well to have a, it's all very well to have a brand behind you and it's all very well to talk about, you know, our major clients overseas and all the stuff we do, but if it, we didn't have those particularly agent and manager relationships back then. So it was really difficult for us to try and break into the business. Um, and you didn't feel a big checkbook helped? It absolutely didn't help. It's actually, I think, the least relevant part of that conversation and relationship. Because if you've built up a relationship and credibility with a band, um, you know, it, it goes a long way. Yes, it comes down to money, but it's more a dialogue of, around getting a deal to a point where it makes sense. If you don't have that opening dialogue, you can't buy it. You simply can't. So, you know, that was, that was, a, that was a very, very challenging factor for us. Um, so for the first couple of years, it was, it, was really hard. it was really hard work and hard to break into the market and also deal with, you know, a lot of the perceptions that we still have crop up today about what our business was and is. Okay, I want to jump to those perceptions then. So, obviously, you would have heard Michael Chugg's interview on this podcast. He obviously was quite disgruntled, and that sentiment is pretty consistent around non-Live Nation promoters and independent operators. What do you put that to? In the broader sense, I put it. I probably put it to a little bit of ignorance, and I don't mean ignorance in a negative or demeaning way. I just think people don't know the full breadth of what we do. You know, we're seen as, as raiders, if you like, um, but we're not, um, and I don't know whether it's because we don't tell a good enough story or a loud enough story about it, but they don't see the investment that we do make um, and the contribution that we do make to the development of artist careers and, 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 um, and, the, and the strong relationships that we do have. And I think the, you know, I think the word independent is an interesting one because, you know, what is an independent? Um, because I think if you follow any if you follow any business stream far enough back, there's some sort of significant influence or support of of that business. Um, in a in a in a world where businesses are consolidating and and broadening, and there is so much pressure on every single business to be diversifying. So I don't really, uh, I don't buy into it to be honest. I'm frustrated by some of the. Um, some of the very very shallow perceptions that that then get broadcast without without investigation or right of reply. Um, and Can you give me some examples. I I just I think I think it's some of the scaremongering you know, and it's the big statements that that are made in in you know in in those in those sorts of conversations. In you know, if you refer to, to to Michael's interview particularly, I mean the, the sort of throwaway comment about artists being unhappy on Live Nation deals, and he specifically name checked Madonna. Well. I'm not aware of you know I'm not aware of of, of any instances of what he's referring to, um, but it, he says it with such forthright confidence that he must be, I must be in the dark. I must be completely unaware of what's going on in our business. But you know I think it's a shame. I absolutely have a I have a huge amount of respect for all three Michaels, um, and I've learned a lot from all three of them in my various roles. And I really like Chuggy. I think he's he's made a huge contribution and continues to make a huge contribution. He's got some absolutely fantastic people in his organisation. Um, you know, people like Matthew Lazarus Hall, who've passed through, who I worked with at Ticker Tech. I think Susan Heyman is an absolute gun. 
um, you know, and I think, um, you know, his partnerships with people like Danny Rogers and stuff like that are all, are all great. Um, he's doing great work, so are we. So I try not to slag anyone else off, but I'm perfectly accepting of people's right to have a view about what we're doing, whether or not it's right or not. The rumours around these independent companies are that, you know, if Live Nation end up acquiring all the venues, then somebody like Michael Chug wants to bring out a tour that also Live Nation want to bring out, you'll prevent him from booking those rooms because you guys didn't win the tour, or at least that's what you'll you'll put forward. Is there any sort of systemized truth to that? If we wanted to destroy our business, that would be how we conducted ourselves because that, that would just be stupid. I mean, a venue needs shows, okay? Um, you're referring to the comments about the Palais in, mm-hmm. in, in Melbourne. Um, first of all, we don't acquire any venues per se um there's there's a there's a there's a competitive process um there are other interested parties and we have to make our case as 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 much as anybody else who's interested in in getting into that business does and we went through an extremely rigorous process with um with the palais theater um and um you know the, the the fact of the matter is that we have an obligation to that facility and and the people of of the city of port phillip that own it um, to deliver a financial outcome, deliver community benefits, and um, in order to do that, we have to have shows go through there. So there is absolutely no way that we would be using um, the commercial, um, you know, the, the com- well, hanging, hanging the commercial imperatives of that venue out to dry to achieve some end over a tour. Um, we, you know, we play... We play AEG Ogden venues with our tours, um, you know, the joint venture that, that, that has most of the arenas in Australia, even though AEG is a competitor of ours, because they're the right venues for the artist. Um, you know, in the promotions business that I'm responsible for, we do the right thing for the artist, we do tours. Um, you know, we have to go and stand in line for a date at the Palais behind anyone else who's holding it, just like every other promoter does. Um, it's got the same booking system as every other venue in Australia does as far as the priority is concerned and the right to challenge for dates and so on. Um, so, you know, that, 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 that sort of a circumstance was never going to, um, you know, it was never going to uh, eventuate um, because it's just bad business. It's really bad business. We wouldn't do it. So we have a company which is investing more in music like we're talking artists here, investing in artists more than any other company, I think, in the world. And of course, there's a huge commercial benefit to that for the music industry. But as you guys continue to grow, do you see any negativity at all of a company becoming too big? I think the only negativity of a company becoming too big is if it loses touch with what what its people think and need um, and what its clients think and need. And that's artists through to you know to um to to the consumer buying the ticket in our case you know we are a big business but there are some pretty significant competitors at every level in this marketplace and and indeed globally um i think that the opportunity of 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 scalability from our perspective is that we can be investing a significant amount of money in in audience and and um artist development um but where I'm sitting right now for what I'm responsible for, I don't, I don't feel like we're the dominant, you know, the dominant force at all. Frontier is still, still really doing significant business and great business. Um, you know, there's a number of venue operators in this market. There's a number of promoters. There's a number of festivals. There's a number of ticketing companies. So, 
you know, I think there's a very long way to go before we can have that conversation about Australia and New Zealand. Roger, this year you, or last year, sorry, you acquired Secret Sounds, who own Splendour in the Grass and Force Festival and launched Sydney City Limits. What is the plan for Live Nation here in Australia? Is that Was that you saw an amazing team, an amazing opportunity, an amazing asset that you needed to jump on? Or is that one piece of a larger puzzle that you are put, assembling together? There's, there's no plan per se. Um, you know, our, our business is about diversity um, or diversification and, and scale. And um, we recognised that, um, that, you know, that, that a key, a key um, quill in the, um, I don't know what you call, where do you put your arrows? A quill? <laughs> we, we felt that a key factor in our ability to, um, to you know, develop um, a, a, a longer-term touring um, strategy for artists needed to include festivals. Um, pretty obvious. Um, so um, when that opportunity came up, um, you're absolutely right. Phenomenal team. Very, very well-executed um, festivals. Um, the, um, you know, I think, I think Download a couple of weekends ago particularly, um, that was executed by, by the Secret Sounds team. Um, who are partners in that as well, and um, it was just such a pleasant event to be at. Um, the The way that the site was configured, the way pet patrons were being treated, um, it wasn't it wasn't a metal festival, you know. It was it was a festival with rock and heavy music, but it was fun, you know. It had um, all the great feelings that you get at Splendor and you get at Falls, even though it was in a, in, in the centre of a city. Um, so you know, I think I think their work is testament to how good they are, um, and I I think you know obviously I I think their their festival assets that because of when and where they fall they actually fit really well into um, increasing what an artist can can do in a touring cycle down here, um, and you know they yeah, they 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 continue to um, be able to do what they do. Um, the way they were doing it, which is, is the other important factor. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we couldn't be more happy to have those guys um, in, in, in partnership with us. How long did that deal take to get done? Oh, you're testing me now. Um, it, 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 in the context of, of, of everything, it didn't, it didn't take that long. Um, you know, it's, um, it was really predicated on us all feeling really comfortable together. And, you know, again... We, we we talked about you know if you've got a big enough checkbook can you close an artist deal or whatever else I think you know it's a classic case of of people feeling comfortable with each other and feeling that um, you know they they could do what they were passionate about um, and and keep doing that um, so it was probably give or take around a year I guess. Mm. Tell me about the deal you did with Unified with Download Festival you just mentioned. Did they come to you? Did you come to them? How did how did that eventuate into that relationship? Oh, that that that's an interesting one. When I was listening to Jaden's podcast, I was actually trying to I was trying to remember how we initially got together, and I, I'm struggling to remember, which I think is probably a good thing because it, to me that sort of shows that there's not really any term around what we're doing. Um, you know, we, we've, we, we're good friends and we're doing great things together. Um, and I think, it, I think it actually started around the Amity Affliction. And, um, and then, you know, we, we've obviously been highly motivated after um, the, the demise of Soundwave to not only um, 
you, you know, exercise um, the ability to bring a, a, a fantastic um, festival brand down here, being Download, which is our brand globally, um, but also try and rebuild that um, hard ticket scene for those those heavy bands because their ability to sell their tickets in their own right um, was was really, I think, reduced by the festival circuit. I think. I think that happened with a lot of bands, with a lot of the festivals that were that were um, regulars in the marketplace here. Um, and you know, I was I was sort of musing one day that everything that we could sell an arena for, pretty much was pop or or hip hop or um, you know or, or sort of heritage stuff. Um, and and I was really just pondering, you know, that there was no arena rock really and no you you talk about these bands in the heavy scene that tour internationally and they're doing arenas in europe and the u.s and and you know they're, they're sort of topping out at a festival hall or a horden here if they're you know one of the bigger ones so jadon and i sort of got together trying to consider how we could start to rebuild that profile and 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 try and get a lot more contemporary bands in that scene as well um so um you know we 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 entered into a partnership whereby um those guys help us you know understand the scene i think they are phenomenal communicators with with their market i live right near um their offices and it still blows my mind to this day that i can walk past on a friday afternoon and there's a queue of 200 kids um outside for a band i've never heard of um that you know that are doing a signing um, and and I think the the, the business that, that Jaden and Rachel have built and and um, you know Luke uh, Logerman as well in, on that side of, of of credibility in the scene contacts relationships and and knowing their market um, was a great opportunity for us to very quickly be able to scale up in 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 that genre of music um, and they ha- you know they they on the on the on the on the download front um were just really critical to our tone of voice um in the market um and really critical on the creative front as well you know um we 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 do what we do secret sounds do what they do but um you know just adding a new dimension to things like merchandise designs and things like that that's that's where those guys really specialize um and you know in a scene where i'm you know you can't see me but i'm wearing a, a pink shirt and you know pale blue shoes um i have no credibility in the rock scene whatsoever you know we we promote slipknot and that sort of thing but i do not fit in and those guys help us look a little less out of place i want to talk about that actually so i um have a number of friends who do big business with you guys both as managers or as executives and the feedback i always get is really overwhelmingly positive as a CEO, how involved are you in the real detail of the initial offers that go out to artists, the the, the marketing strategies, the in the detail? How, how involved are you in that? Or are you more systematic? You build the system and then you allow your staff to execute. Uh, it depends. It depends whether or not I'm... I'm actually a talent buyer as well as, as, as my CEO duties. We have, we have a phenomenal group of, 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 of staff that we've built up over over time um, and I think as the business has grown um, you know there's there's become an increasing reliance on um, l- using that support base and using the expertise that's there um, so you know on on my you know on my tours personally yeah I stay pretty in touch with the detail but I don't I, I, I I'm not a marketer so I don't go and dig in on 
what Nathan and his team, uh, Nathan's our head of tour marketing who, who came across from Universal. I don't, I don't dig in on, on exactly what they're doing and booking because I, I care about the budget, I care about the ticket selling and I care about media being in the logical place but I'm not a marketer and if I was to go into that playground, I would create some sort of a mess. So, um, you know, I, I think as time has gone on and as we've got bigger, I think our people are getting better at letting people get on with what they're doing and form their own relationships and, and you know, get, what, what I wanted to do ideally was get to a point where um, the relationships with a, an artist client or, or any client in our business weren't actually hanging on one person. It was actually about... You know, there being two or three people that were critical to, um, you know, to, to that client and their experience with us. Um, and um, so, you know, and, and there is a fear of letting go and there's a fear of being caught out and not knowing what's going on. But I think where we're spending a lot of time at the moment is trying to get that, that sort of seamless um, communication going where people who need to know what they need to know know it. But the people that we've hired who specialise in certain areas can actually just get about doing what they're doing. They know, they know the standard that we're expecting to deliver or that we're expected to deliver and that, that we expect that Live Nation will deliver. Um, and, you know, if they need help with a particular client, you know, we have that conversation and I'll, I'll get involved in, in those instances, you know, if it's, if it's a development deal with an artist or something like that. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's very easy to get bogged down in, in the minutiae and, and then you lose sight of, of the rest of what's going on in the business. And how systemized is uh, each role within the company? So if your head of marketing decides to move on or, you know, a, a talent buyer leaves, how, is it soldier in, soldier out? Or do you really need to find the absolute right person because it's not as systemized as, say, a McDonald's position? <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's definitely... Look, they, they, have to, they have to fit the role, obviously, but it's definitely about the person and their background. Um, as that's a major factor and, and the fit. We, I think when, when um, we merged with Michael Koppel Presents in 2012, I think it was, we went from, you know, we, we were about 16 people, I think. When I was at my, in Michael's business, it was about nine or 10. Now we're about 60. So no role has ever been identical when when we've you know when we've had a, a, a need to replace. We've had a lot of new roles, um, so that's been a great opportunity to, um, to to get a real diversity of people in the business. But we do try and encourage people as well to um, to at least be aware of what goes on in other areas too. So we've we've had people transfer. You know, we've we've just had someone transfer from our ticketing team into production because she's really passionate about um, production and logistics side of things. Yeah, it's it's about the personalities and having the right people in the business, and not just yeah that that they fit the position description exactly because that that's we are we are a creative business, so that's that's pretty key. So as CEO, how visible are you to all sixty staff? We've we've actually just made a dramatic change in our offices in Melbourne, which um, is making a huge difference. We've basically gone completely open, open plan, which is is new for pretty much everyone, and that's that's been really positive because it's allowed including it, yourself. I know I'm I do have an office, and it's you know I contemplated being being out out in the in in the, in the open area, but a lot of the conversations that I have are you know that they, they really can't be shared obviously but you know i do try my best to be you know as as visible visible as possible i'm sure a bunch of people are listening to this and maybe disagreeing um it's hard it's really difficult 
um, especially when you've got people in different cities as well. Um, you know, it's we have a, a, an office up here in Sydney and um, our, our leadership are making a conscious effort when they're in Sydney to, to actually go in and, and, and be seen. Um, we try to be very open in our communication with, with, with our staff about what the business is doing, um, how we're tracking, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, uh, I don't think anyone gets it really perfectly right. Um, it's, it's, you, can, you can have as much rigour in, you know, doing regular, regular catch-ups and whips and that sort of thing, but, um, you know, there's always, there's, there's always bound to be someone who doesn't feel like they're, you know, that they're, they're getting the, the attention. Um, so, but we, we, you know, we, we are doing a huge amount of work on changing, you know, and, and, and developing our, our leadership team because, you know, the cultural aspect of, of, of any business, I think is, is critically important. It's very important to Live Nation globally as well. Uh, I want to talk about TicketWeb. They were our big partners for the Institute Observer Awards and it was a huge privilege to, to work with them on that event. They came to the you launched in Australia November last year. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Obviously, the play there is to make a move with the smaller venues and self-ticketing events, which is it's quite uh, a clear opportunity there. I want to ask: Did you ever try to acquire Oztix or Moshtix or any of those other smaller players in the market before the launch? You'd probably have to ask the MD of Ticketmaster of that. You know, I, I, I'm not. I'm not particularly. I'm not particularly aware of that. I mean, we, you know, we, we do a lot of business with all of those. The promotions business does a lot of business with all of those ticketing companies. Whether or not they've come to us or we've gone to them, I wouldn't, wouldn't cross my desk, to be honest. It's not, not my area of uh, responsibility. So you, you can maybe do one of these with Maria O'Connor at some point. <laughs> okay, I'll probably hold you to that. <laughs> but, you know, we've been speaking a lot about you as a CEO, but... I want to ask you as an employee, um, what's Michael like to report into? Which one? <laughs> uh, Michael Rapino. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I'm one, of, I'm one of the few people in the industry that's getting somewhere without the name Michael, but my brother's name's Michael, so that, that <laughs> helps, I'm sure. Look, he, he's, he's a phenomenal person. I, I, you, you talk about fear at the top, um, the name of this podcast. I just can't quite wrap my head around how someone can be responsible um, for a business like ours um, in the, the cut and thrust of LA and also deal with, you know, us being a listed company um, and, uh, you know, the, the str- strategy and growth um, and, and then still be approachable and, you know, and, and still have at, at the core of, of what um, we do as a business and he does still have the culture um, as, a, as a huge priority. Um, he's launched um, so many initiatives internally. Um, you know, we have a, a program called Taking Care of Our Own, where if someone's experiencing any sort of hardship, you know, the, the company will help out, um, whether it's time off or, or financial or whatever else. We have, I think, um, really pretty incredible uh, approach to, to maternity and paternity leave, um, you know, He's rolled out a, a diversity program. Um, he, he's, his approach to what we do is, is um, the artist. The artists are, are a priority. The fans are a huge priority, and the, and and the people producing what we do for those two clients are a huge priority. And I think that goes to the fact that if you've got a bad culture internally, you're going to produce bad work, or um, you know it's it's going to be uh, you know an unhappy workplace 
creates um, negativity in what you what what you're producing. And um, I think over the past several years, what he's ultimately done is create a framework within which each of the heads of business can operate. But we get a huge amount of latitude. Um, um, you know, we we can decide in our businesses whether we you know do more than than what's mandated centrally. Um, we, you know, we, we get budgets for certain things like training and development or the diversity program, but, you know, we, we invest more locally in, in what we're doing. We don't have to adhere, adhere to a rigid framework, but what, what is given to us is a guideline of what we should be thinking about um, and, and the latitude to go and do that. But if I, you know, if I emailed him now, I'd get a reply within 10 minutes, even if it was about nothing at all. Um, he's and incredibly, it's him replying? Or a- it's him replying, yep, oh, wow. yep. And you know you do freak out a little bit, yeah. <laughs> you, you do um, you do get a little bit of a freak out when Michael Rapino pops up as your um, as a as a as a as a sender of an email. Um, but um, yeah, he's really hands on, and he he says um, he says in I think on Tuesday there was a, a sort of global town hall where he spoke to all of our all of our um, employees, um, and he covers strategy and new initiatives and that sort of thing. And um, you know he says to them. If you have got anything, if you need anything, email me. And people in our business have done that, you know. Um, and I think that's pretty incredible for someone with, I don't know how many employees globally we've got. It must be about 12,000, I think. Yeah, so wow. that's pretty phenomenal to be that accessible. So as a territory CEO, what sort of KPIs does he put on you? We're, subject, we're, we're subjected to exactly the same um, benchmarks as, as you would expect. And, um, you, you, you know, we... we globally have a set of metrics that we have to hit so obviously we have to be a profitable business um we have to you know we have to 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 try and hit targets around um number of tickets sold number of shows produced that gives us the sort of target motivation to to continue trying to grow and develop the business one of the interesting metrics that people may may not be aware of is that our our show count um for the year is broken into um club theater arena and stadium and and people think that we you know we're motivated only to operate on the big stuff one of the most important metrics for us to hit is the club level which is is shows of of under a thousand people and the reason for that is because he he and the business wants us to continue investing in developing artists um you know and it's so you know we we are held to account and it, i mean the the profit the profit margins on those would be tiny in comparison it, it, it often it often comes up in our business. Why do we do these shows? Because um, on every front, um, you know, it, it's it's arguably as much work to produce one of those tours as it is to produce a, a, an arena tour. Um, you know, I, I think obviously there's some some latitude around that, but a lot of work does go into them. Um, but you know, there are relationships that are formed out of those small shows um, and. Um, those relationships build into something bigger. You know, um, you, you, you look at an international client like 21 Pilots, um, you know, who three or four years ago we were doing shows at, um, at uh, you know, the Corner Hotel um, and, and last year we sold out Kudos um, and Rod Laver. Gang of Youths, who I think you might be a fan of, I'm not sure. Yes. Um, you know, um, those, those, those bands are growing their careers and you know we want to be there from the beginning and we want to support and 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 help develop them and ideally get to a point where we're i'd I'd love to be taking an australian band internationally um into the business um 
we have development deals um, where you know we 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 give artists a, 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 a an amount of capital to help start them up and help them with their their expenses and 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 so on and and then we through the business actually map out a, a strategic plan of getting them in front of as many people as possible um, and 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 get them the show count that they need within the business um, without them having to go and 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 just try and execute each individual um, territory on its own um, we haven't yet achieved one of those in in Australia um, or New Zealand definitely want to do it but we're seeing a lot of We've we've done a few interesting things with 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 a few acts like Dua Lipa though where we've you know we've had a long term strategy and 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 we've fronted we've fronted some expenses up you know at the at the at the pointy end of of, of playing you know the Northcote Social Club and then in time we've got to the point where we're you know we're actually putting them on big support slots like you know your Bruno Mars which she just came and did and, and she sold out Luna Park and the Palais Theatre in the space of a year and a half so. Um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting topic. Roger, thank you so much for your time today. I'm gonna leave with one more question. I want to just say uh, how I do feel there is in this territory specifically a huge tall poppy syndrome, where when a company starts to really become influential, is when the fangs seem to come out. <laughs> and I just want to say that personally, the uh, any company, any person, any organisation that is investing millions and even in your case, billions of dollars into artists and into the music industry, it can't be a bad thing. And, you know, that that example you just said is an exceptional good indication of what it can do for artists who have struggled for investment early in their career and need that platform and that guidance and that investment. And so if we have companies doing that, I don't see that being a bad thing. But I want to ask you before you go, you've now been in the CEO role for over a year. I want to know the biggest mistake you've made since you took on the headship and what we can learn from it. Oh, this is a difficult question. Not because I, I'm, I'm, I've no doubt I've made mistakes. I just maybe I've wiped them from my, uh, my, my conscience, my consciousness, I should say. Look, I, I think, I think probably the, the, the biggest. Well, it's not. Uh, I guess it's a, a mistake in a way, but I, I think you know uh, it took it took a little bit of a while to shake a, t- a tendency. I think everyone has to sort of sit back in businesses and and you know decide something's not my problem or you know that's just the way it is it's not within my control um and i think um that i didn't come to that 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 i didn't sort of come to that realization earlier and um actually try and affect some of the the really positive stuff i think we're doing earlier um is is probably um you know is is probably a, a regret and a mistake um you know we've we've um gone through a lot of really positive change within the business this year but um you know i i I sort of for some reason decided i could only affect that change when you know when my title changed whereas you know the the business has ultimately been my responsibility for for a while um and um you know it's sort of i guess frustration seeped in that certain things weren't within my control or power and I i think that's that's a cop out I think um, businesses could do a lot better everywhere if if people didn't sat back, sit back, and and you know just accept the norm and, and complain about it, but but actually try and affect positive change, um, because I think everybody's responsible for their own destiny. Being decisive, being direct, um, and and trying to um, explain 
you know what needs to happen and why it needs to happen um, is 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 pretty. It's pretty key, and it's pretty much in everybody's control. So I, I don't, I don't, you know, in hindsight now, I don't accept that anyone can sit in a business and say that you know it's shit. I hate it. You know, it's it's not good, but I'm staying. Uh, I think everybody has a responsibility to step in and 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 affect that change. So yeah, that's that's probably just on the on the spot. Sort of my biggest uh, my my biggest. Um, misstep of, of the past couple of years was not just getting into it a little bit earlier and, and, and doing some of the positive stuff that we're, we're trying to achieve at the moment. And I get the feeling you're talking to your own staff there. Roger, thank you so much for everything that you've done in Australia over the last few years. We look forward to seeing what happens at Live Nation over the next five years and really appreciate your time today. No, pleasure. And, and my parting comment will be, you know, to, to the point you were, you were discussing before, this business is about the people and the personalities. And, you know, we may be Live Nation, but we've got, you know, we've got people who've been in the business in our business for a very long time, the Nigel Melders, um, you know, Luke Heed from, from, from Dainty, um, you know, James Browning works with us, our partnership with Jadden, Jess and Paul. No one's been brainwashed to my knowledge. Um, they're still the same people. So, um, yeah, if you, you want to work with us, roll up. Thank you.